It is a joy to be together and to, as a congregation of the Lord's people, both as a group as well as individuals, express that we will follow Jesus and carry the cross that is necessary in order to faithfully follow him. Thank you for being here and for being an encouragement to those who are sitting near you. And you are an encouragement to me, and I hope that we can all work together in helping each other get closer to heaven. I invite you to open your Bibles to the first book of Corinthians, chapter 14, where we're going to read a couple of verses at the outset of our study here in just a moment. By your opening there, again, we're thankful for those who are visiting with us. We are grateful for your presence, grateful for all those who, uh, even in spite of sickness and suffering, you're still here, or those that are unable to be here who are watching us on the internet. We're grateful for those who are choosing to invest their time in spiritual things. I wanted to say just a couple of things about the comments that I made last Sunday evening, which I received a lot of feedback on the idea of those who suffer silently. And I just appreciate so many kind words, and it seemed to resonate with others, and I appreciate that so very much. I was thinking about those who suffer silently, and then a few days ago, I was thinking about those who serve silently. And uh, I was thinking about that a couple of days ago when I walked in here and there was uh, invariably men and or women who are cleaning the building and stocking the shelves and doing all the things behind the scenes. They are just the silent servers who don't ask for any credit. Uh, They look tired sometimes. You walk in here on a Tuesday afternoon or a Wednesday morning and they're busy working, cleaning things, getting things ready for services. And we are thankful for them. And don't think that that doesn't go unnoticed as well. I wanted just to think about that for just a second or two this morning. The world is filled with all sorts of confusion, all sorts of things that make us uncertain and make us uneasy, where we want to throw up our hands with those question marks coming out of our brains saying, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to, to, to think. I don't know where to go because the world is filled with confusion. But God is not the author of the confusion that transpires in this world, certainly when it comes to religious or spiritual matters. And there may be those who are here this morning. In fact, I'm convinced that there probably are at least a few individuals who either A, have experienced some confusion in the past, or B, are experiencing even some confusion today when it comes to spiritual things. And someone may come to you with one of the two or three major points that we're going to make today and ask some questions. You may say, I I don't know, I'm confused on that as well. Hopefully we can clear up some of that confusion by looking at some passages that will take us down a couple of different paths together this morning. This, of course, this concept of God not being confusion's author comes from an inspired statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where I've asked you to open. And I want to read just a a paragraph or two there, beginning in verse 26. And just very briefly, you're familiar with the way that 1 Corinthians is written, that chapters 12 
13 and 14 almost always go together as a section in themselves. Sandwiched in between is the short chapter 13, which is the love chapter. And sometimes we read that separate from 12 and 14, and that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. But what Paul was trying to express to these individuals who had spiritual gifts, the ability to speak in tongues, the ability to prophesy, the ability to do these special things that we are unable to do 2,000 years later, is make sure that you don't get caught up in who's better at spiritual gifts in the congregation, and make sure that things are not confusing and out of order. And that's kind of this paragraph here beginning in verse 26. And so he asks in some ways a rhetorical question. He says, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, someone has a psalm, someone has a teaching, someone has a tongue, someone has a revelation, someone has an interpretation. And you see that it seems that based on chapters 12 and 13 that there was a competition among the brethren at Corinth as to who had the better talent or the better spiritual gift. He says, I want you to do all things so that edification or the building up of the congregation of the saints may occur. If anyone speaks in a tongue, this is verse 27, let there be two or at the most three each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let him first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And then he says in the verse that has kind of launched our study this morning, which is not necessarily about spiritual gifts, which are absent today in 2023. He says that God, after all, is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so in a world of spiritual or religious confusion, and we're going to talk about three aspects today, we need to understand that God didn't create that confusion. It's not his fault. It's not his doing but instead it is man's doing. And so the Corinthian Christians were told to have this sense of order in their services. Incidentally, doing all things well and in order comes from this very context, and that's one of the reasons why, even though we don't have spiritual gifts, we have an order of services. It may seem strange to someone who's never been to a church service to come to one of our assemblies, for example, and someone gets up without any sort of notice and starts reading scripture, and then someone else leads some songs, and then someone else gets up to preach. It's not just a matter of, well, let's just flip a coin and see who does what. It's organized, and we appreciate our elders and our deacons making sure that it's done that way. And the fact is, is we as men and women have an acute ability to confuse what God has simply stated. And that is true in so many religious ways. And so a lack of order gives way to confusion, prohibits the building up and the edification And I want us to consider three practical things. Think about someone, and we have individuals today who didn't grow up on a pew who are here with us. We have individuals who are new to Christianity. We have those who uh, maybe have been Christians for dozens of years, but maybe you have family that are dealing with challenges of confusion. I want to talk about three things that are confusing and make a couple of quick applications about each of those. And the first of those is that is of choosing a church. That's potentially confusing. 
when you think about it today, there are lots of churches to choose from. And when I talk about church, I'm talking about denominations. I'm talking about the fact that there are all kinds of different groups with all kinds of different names, with all kinds of different beliefs, with all kinds of different teachings. And you likely, when you left your home or your apartment this morning and you came here, there are some of you or some of us who passed 6, 10, 12, 15 different places of worship that called themselves churches to get to this building. And while this place, this building itself is not a sacred building, we came here for the purpose of worshiping our God. And so why did we pass up that six or 10 or 12 or 15 places and come here? You think about someone who is coming off the street, who has no religious background, who has no real spiritual understanding, and that may not be necessarily their fault because they weren't taught at a young age. And they may say, well, I want to choose a church that has a very old reputation. So they may say, how old is the denomination? I want something that is sacred and old. Or I want something that's new and hip and, and, and with the times and progressive. Someone may say that. What kinds of social activities does it offer my children? I've been asked that question before when someone finds out what I do, or maybe you and you have been representing the church in some fashion. Well, what kind of activities do you have for your children? Do you have a day camp? Do you have daycare? Do you have a playground for them to play on? All those kinds of things. Or what church is most convenient to my schedule? These are all things that normal people in the world that don't have a spiritual compass like hopefully we have developed as we've grown as Christians, that they are going to uh, be confused about. And it seems to me that the scriptures help clear up that confusion. I want to look at three passages here very quickly in that the Bible speaks about the existence of one church and no such thing as denominationalism. And I think about this, I was thinking about this just three days ago as I was uh, studying with someone about the exclusiveness of the name Christian. We use the name Christian. When I say we, sometimes members of the church and uh, sometimes just people in general, and we use it very loosely. Our, our neighbors are Christian because they go to church. Where do they go to church? Well, I don't know where they go to church, but they're Christian. How can you be in a denomination and be a faithful Christian? Or someone would say, they are a denominational Christian. Or someone would say, that's a denominational brother of mine. I kind of scratch my head and wonder, how can that be? When there's no such thing as denominationalism as outlined in scriptures themselves. And so in Matthew chapter 16, we actually prayed this morning and we say, God, you are the founder and the builder of the church. And so there in chapter 16, picking up in about verse 13, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he says to his disciples, which is a powerful word, followers, students, learners, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Some say, Jesus, that you are John the Baptist, that you are Elijah, that you are Jeremiah or another prophet. He says, but I want to know who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am in verse 15? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In a very powerful statement that that is. Jesus says, 
Blessed or fortunate are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I'm also going to say to you that, and this is fodder for misteaching in the religious world today, he says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Do not let someone try to convince you that the church was built on Peter as the rock. And there are people in the religious world that will try to teach that. And say that Peter is the basis of everything. So he's going to be the first of the papacy. He's going to be the first of the church. Rather, what the church is built on is what Peter confessed when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the basis of the church. That is, as Brother Bill talked about in his class this morning, the tie that binds us together. The fact that we believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the Christ. Jesus built one church. And it is an insult, it seems to me, in the face of Jesus that you have just here in this county, probably somewhere between 50 to 75 denominations, options of, quote, churches that exist that you could go to that believe all kinds of different things. And everyone says, well, it doesn't matter what you believe because all roads lead to heaven. I will now share with you the verse that teaches that. I'm done sharing. And so we move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to the text that we were looking at in just a moment ago in chapter 14, but go back just a couple of pages in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. He says, for as the body is one and has many members, and the many members is not many denominations, which some will try to teach in 1 Corinthians 12, but all the members of that one body being many are one, so also in Christ. For one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all been made to drink into one spirit. For in the fact, the body is not one member, but many. And so the idea here is we are the church, and we are many members of that church as individual Christians that make up the body. That Then he goes on to delineate over the next five to ten verses in describing the value that each person brings to a local church or to the church in a universal sense. And we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, that there's one God, one faith, and there is only one church. You have to do a lot of linguistic gymnastics. You have to do a lot of mental jumping around to certify or to at least authorize the idea of there being many churches. And I understand that probably to the vast majority of individuals that I'm speaking to this morning, this is not controversial. And this isn't something that's getting you riled up. But to those in the world and to our religious friends and to those who are our neighbors who may believe that they are Christians, but in fact are not because they have not done what the scriptures have said, these are fighting words. And these are the kinds of things that will make them a little bit upset. The goal is not just to make people upset and to throw grenades, but rather to teach the truth and hope that people will come back to the church that practices and teaches exactly what Jesus practiced and taught and the apostles uh, provided for us in the early church. And I put that this is the church. Now, we as Christians, as members of the Lord's church, will sometimes be accused of saying that we are the only ones who are going to go to heaven. And there are different appropriate ways, it seems to me, of answering that claim or that charge. 
I think one of the things that I often point out is that when it comes to who goes to heaven, I don't get to make that decision, nor do you, that the Lord makes that choice. That being said, the Lord has laid out through his inspired word, through like we talked about three weeks ago, through the commands, through necessary inference, and through approved apostolic examples, the things that are necessary in order for us to be the kind of church that Jesus founded 2,000 years ago. Think about it this way. If you were going to pay for an organization or some sort of institution, and it was going to be named after you, and as a, as, as a part of you paying the $15 million to have that written above the, the building in stone or on a placard that this is the building belonging to Joe Smith, that to, to, to Pam Rogers, to whoever your name is, that there are certain things that that organization has to be dedicated to and to be organized around. And then five years into it, someone is there at that organization and says, I want to do something different than what Pam or Joe said. You have no right to do something different because you didn't pay for it, nor did I. And the same is more so true with the Lord's church. This is the church of Christ that belongs to Jesus himself. We have no right to change or alter anything he put into place in black and white or in red that comes from the New Testament teaching itself. Any church that teaches or practices something different than the Bible's church can't be the church. We cannot all be in disagreement and say, well, that's okay. That's what the world religiously would have us to believe. But that is impossible based on scriptural teaching. So church choosing could be confusing. I, I do not envy someone who says, I want to go to church. I want to start making my life right. I want, to, I, want to, I want to think about God and Jesus in my life, but has no sense of direction where he or she is going to start. That would be a frightening thing. How do you, how do you start? Do you just go on the internet and say, best church to go in Rutherford County? I don't know. Someone might Google that, see what comes up. I'm curious what that would be. But that's not the way we choose a church, but that is potentially confusing. What about life's purpose? That's potentially confusing. And in a world today where people stress education and income and physical health and the way that you look, you know, there are a lot of theories about what the purpose of life is. And if you were to go uh, to the local store or stand on a busy street corner uh, and ask 100 people, what is the purpose of life or what is the meaning of life, you're going to get a whole lot of different answers. And we actually talked about this just a couple of weeks ago in one of our Bible classes. Some would say, I want my children to have a good education, and I want my children and my grandchildren to have a better future than I have. Or I want to have a nice family. Everyone wants a nice family. No one wants a, a, an unnice family, right? I want to have a nice family. I want to have family that loves me and that accepts me and that builds me up and that I can do the same for them. Or I want to be able to leave the world a better place than when I first got here X years ago. Maybe in a small way by showing acts of kindness or in a big way by finding ultimately that cure for that horrible disease. Are any of those three things necessarily bad? I think we can all agree, no. 
we all want our children's education to be better than ours. We want to have nice families. We want financial security. And we want to make the world a better place to live. But it seems to me that the scriptures help us clear up the confusion as to what the real purpose on life is. And that, it seems to me, is the heart of both the Old and the New Testament in five passages that I want to look at here in fairly quick succession. These are passages that are likely familiar to good Bible students, those of whom are here today. I want to start all the way back in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Brother Bain took us through Deuteronomy just a couple of years ago and did a really nice job of, of dealing with a book that sometimes gets a little bit of uh, short-changed attention. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to read about three verse, or two or three verses here. He says, this is the greatest commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which are the Lord, well, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, so that you observe them into the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, that you will keep all of his statutes and his commandments, or as we sang today, precepts and promise, law and love. All the statutes, all the commandments which I command you, you, your son, your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. And then he begins this hero Israel, be careful to observe it. Two or three pages over in your Bibles in Deuteronomy chapter 10, now Israel what does the Lord your God require of you? Or, if I could just paraphrase that a bit, what is God's purpose in life for us as humans? What do you think it is? Fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command for you today which, he says, are for your good. In the high school class, we are currently studying the minor prophets, and we have had a study of Micah. We also, in our young people studies throughout the year, have been studying from Micah. And Brother Gerald taught the subject of Micah a few months back to the young people. And one of the verses that he rightly focused on was here in chapter 6 and verse 8. If you back up to verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Might I paraphrase that and say, what is God's purpose for me in this life? Drop down to verse 8. He has shown you what the purpose is. Oh, man, he has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But ultimately, three things. Three things that were true 2,500 years ago and three things that are true today. Do justly or be fair love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those things, it seems to me, are indeed at the core of who we are as human beings, as Christians, who understand what the real purpose of life is. Back up in your Bibles and back up 600 years earlier to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 12, further, my son, be admonished by these and I think this is interesting, and, I, and maybe I'm taking a little bit of uh, uh, liberty here, but he says, of making many books, there is no end. When, and, and of making many professions of what the meaning of life is, there is no end. 
There's all kinds of options out there as to what life's purpose is about. And he says, that's wearisome. Or I would even argue that's a little bit confusing. And so he says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is not just an Old Testament concept, but two New Testament passages that come to mind, one in the Gospel of Matthew and one in the Gospel of Mark. And in Matthew chapter 22, very late in Matthew's uh, account of the life and the teachings of Jesus, in verse 36, someone comes to Jesus, and there in 2236 of the Gospel of Matthew says, which is the great commandment in the law? You shall love the Lord your God, Jesus says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, let me tell you this. And Jesus has these statements that just really get your attention where he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He says, you want to understand the Old Testament? And I know it's 39 books, Jesus would say. I know it takes hours to read, and it takes a lifetime to appreciate and understand. Fear God, keep his commandments. Love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you can understand those concepts, which an average human being is able to understand, you will understand the purpose of life. And in doing that, you will do everything that the Lord asks you to do, both individually as a child of his and being obedient to him uh, throughout your life, but also as members of the Lord's church, which we'll talk a little bit more in the closing comments that we'll make in just a moment. Or in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, similarly, we find the statements that are made in verse 28, where he says, which is the first commandment? The first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he repeats, as he says, going all the way back to Deuteronomy, verse 30 of Mark 10. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, of course, this is what would elsewhere launch Jesus into teaching about who a neighbor was. So as to clear up the confusion that I can say, well, he's my neighbor, but he's not my neighbor. The point is, is we've got to understand that when we put God first and when we put others next, everything works out. That's not confusing at all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33, and everything else will fall into place if I can paraphrase a little bit of the latter part of chapter 6, verse 33. Let me suggest to you that a third component of confusion that comes up is the idea of how to be saved. I think all people want to go to heaven. And as I mentioned uh, just two weeks ago at a funeral that I did for a dear friend of mine back in Indiana, uh, it seems to me that you go to any funeral or read every obituary and everybody's going to heaven. Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter. You, I found it interesting. I was talking about this just a couple of days ago. You read obituaries where a person talks about the things that they like to drink or the things that they like to consume or the activities that they were involved in or they'd been married 17 times and divorced 16 times. and I mean, clearly their life is not where it should be. 
but yet they've been accepted into the kingdom of heaven when they took their last breath. I'm not the judge. I'm glad I'm not, nor are you. But if a person's life is not showing any fruits of righteous living or repentance, not everyone can be going to heaven. And Matthew chapter 7 says the vast majority will not. I didn't make that up. If you don't like that claim, take it up with Jesus. He's the one who says, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads unto life and righteousness. So there are lots of answers to the question, how can I be saved? Sometime, if you want, uh, in your spare time, uh, that may be an anomaly, the idea of spare time these days, but look up, how can I be saved? How can I go to heaven? Look that up on Google, and you'll get all kinds of crazy stuff out there. Be a good person, God will save you. Be kind. You know, the world is filled with a lot of kind people. I would say that the majority of the people, and especially uh, being here in, in the Mid-South and in this region, we have a lot of Southern hospitality. Uh, we have a lot of people who are kind and considerate, and that's great. But just being kind doesn't get you into heaven. Some are saying that heaven and hell aren't real. Don't sweat it. You will find people who say the idea of being saved, the idea of heaven and hell are just these fictitious, fable kinds of concepts that came up by some man or woman years ago to get you to be fearful and to live a certain way. Some would say, just ask Jesus into your heart. Say the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is found in the same passage that I read from earlier that I didn't read from because it's not there. The scriptures, like we've done throughout the entire study this morning, are going to be the source for clearing up the confusion by specifically illustrating the necessary components of salvation and what is necessary. And so it seems to me that there are a couple of things that are very basic, maybe first principles that we're going to talk about here on the next slide, and then maybe some more pragmatic principle kind of things that we'll talk about in just a moment. But is how to be saved really that confusing as illustrated in God's word? To become a Christian, and the key word there is to become a child of God, it requires key things. It does not mean that you live in a, quote, Christian nation. That doesn't make you a Christian. The fact that you go to a church on a regular or semi-regular basis does not make you a Christian and make you saved. The fact that you believe in Jesus as the Christ and said, yeah, I'll try to live my life a little bit better, and that was the end of your commitment, does not make you a Christian. And those three statements that I just made are very controversial in a religious world that says anything and everything goes. And that's okay. I'm not going to apologize for it. Certainly, faith in Jesus the Christ is absolutely fundamental and is essential. And I don't think there's anyone that is present this morning, nor is there really anyone in the broader religious world that would disagree with this concept. Jesus would say, if you do not believe that I am the Messiah or the Christ or him, you're going to die in your sins. And he was saying this to a group of people who largely were parts of the audience on a regular basis that thought that they had everything figured out. He says, if you don't believe that I'm the one that has come to save mankind, you'll die. You'll die in your sins and you'll have no hope 
of an eternity with the Lord. But generally speaking, I think you would agree with me, that's where pretty much most denominations stop. By the way, notice I did not use the word other before denominations on purpose. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic and be judgmental of someone who, who uh, casually used that term in an invitation talk or uh, a sermon or whatever, but we are not another denomination, nor are we a other denomination. So let's make sure we get that right in the way that we talk, because we are not a option. We are the Lord's church, and that makes the difference. And so repentance and a real change. Luke 13 says, if you do not repent, you will perish. Famously in Acts 2, verse 38, on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? We've made serious, grievous errors. The first thing out of the mouth of Peter is he says, you need to repent. You got to change the way that you think. You got to change the way that you act. You got to change everything going forward. As I was studying just a couple of days ago with someone else, it's the idea of renewing your spirit, renewing your mind, renewing your faith. It involves a confession of faith that is public. Jesus, in fact, says, if you do not confess me before men, I will not confess you before the Father in Matthew chapter 10. And the reason I put public there is because while that may not uh, resonate with you, we are very familiar with those of us that have been baptized, whether it was in front of maybe a couple of people uh, in, a, in an intimate gathering of family and friends, or maybe in front of a congregation of a hundred and some people. Uh, the preacher or whoever baptized you said, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, or do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Some variation of that question. And you, you didn't go up to the, to the preacher man and whisper in his ear, yeah, no, you said, yeah, I do. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that he is the Son of God. Yes, I believe it. And you said it, maybe not loud enough for everybody to hear, but that people heard it. And that's not the only confession of faith that we make throughout our life. Because we can't just stop confessing Jesus at that moment and say, I've confessed him once. The reason I belabor this point is because there's someone that's on my mind that's not even in this state, but may very well be listening to this sermon at some point who has a very private view of faith and wants to do what's right. But you cannot be private about your faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't get that. I get it in the sense that you don't want to ruffle the feathers of those around you. That, that's human. But you cannot be private in your faith of Jesus Christ and be saved. And if I'm wrong, correct me. But that just seems to me that it's a matter of a public confession and then, of course, a baptism, which doesn't have to be public. We see individuals throughout scriptures who are baptized with just a couple of people around them. Acts chapter 8, for example. Mark 16, 16, Jesus says, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. Brother Josh talked about this on Wednesday evening when he was talking about the idea of being saved. He says, if, if it's something that you just need to do privately with someone else, do so. 1 Peter 3.21 says indeed that you are an individual who is going to be baptized not for the remission of physical filth, but the answer of a good conscience. But it seems to me that that's not the end of the story in that to remain a faithful Christian and to inherit heaven requires key things as well. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about that because in, the, in our final five to six minutes here, because it seems to me, and especially when I was growing up, some have said you've yet to grow up, but it seems when I was younger and, and learning about steps of salvation, this is kind of where we stopped. And it can't stop here because it's got to continue. And it's got to continue with the idea that there's certain things that are necessary. I can't say, I'm out of the waters of baptism, dripping wet, tears coming out of my eyes, I'm good to go, and there's nothing else I need to do to change my life going forward. If it were only that simple, but it's not. And so one of the things that I wanted to point out before we get to the more exhaustive list in just a moment is you've got to have an involvement in a local congregation. I'm not going to read those four or five passages. Most of those are just very introductory passages that oftentimes we overlook, Ephesians 1, 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. But that's where you see a church at Ephesus with members at Ephesus. That's where you see a church at Corinth with members at Corinth. That's where you see people in Jerusalem who are members of the church at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, for example, and Acts chapter 2, as you see the beginning of the church there in the city of Jerusalem. The point that I'm making is that there are individuals that you will run into in the religious world and even among local churches and even among brethren who will say, I really don't need to be a part of a local congregation. I can be a Christian and have no, no relationship, no direct uh, uh, interaction with a local body. I'm not sure exactly where they get that. Again, that's some gymnastics that seem to happen. But if you read these passages, there is something about being a local Christian with a local body. Now, when you are baptized into Jesus Christ, we don't baptize people in the Northfield. There are people that are members at Northfield. In fact, a lot of us who weren't baptized at Northfield we're baptized elsewhere all across the country. But we're still a part of the Lord's body, and we have identified with this group of disciples and said, this is where our home is. Sometimes that's geography. Sometimes that's proximity. Sometimes that's family. Sometimes it's a matter of, this is where I think I can best use my talents as compared to elsewhere, whatever the case may be, if there are other faithful congregations within driving distance. But let me suggest to you that to remain a faithful Christian not only requires the idea of this involvement in a local congregation, but it truly does involve faithful, diligent service to God. And I was thinking about that, and I made a list of about five or six things that I think make up faithful, diligent service to God. This is not an exhaustive list, but if I were to make a list of four, five, six things. Number one is we've got to discipline ourselves daily. And again, we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul himself says, I've got to make sure that I conduct myself in such a way that I'm disciplined in a proper way. Secondly, I have to keep myself from falling from grace. I put up Galatians chapter 5 where that statement comes from, but my mind immediately goes to Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says, I want you to walk circumspectly. Some versions would even say in a more uh, literal uh, view of that or a somewhat literal view, I want you to walk very cautiously or very carefully. We ought not be scared as Christians in the way that we walk, but we ought to be definitely cautious in the way that we walk. 
not scared in the sense that I'm not going to move. But if I don't go anywhere, if I don't say anything, if I don't do anything, I won't do anything wrong. But I am going to move forward, but I'm going to be very cautious about the things that I do because I can fall from grace. Incidentally, virtually every denomination that exists will teach you that you cannot fall from grace. That once you're a Christian, you're good to go and you're golden. Thirdly, I've got to do some serious behavioral training and changing. Read all of Romans chapter 12. Those first two verses are very familiar where it talks about a reasonable service and a sacrifice that we make of ourselves. And then especially in the last two-thirds, the way that we love, the way that we sympathize, the way that we worship, the way that we treat others. We have to be studiers and we have to be growers. You cannot say, you know what? I've been a Christian now for a year and a half. I have studied my Bible. I've read it through. I think I've got the picture now. And now I can just coast on easy street for the rest of my life. Not so. And there are individuals who are so impressive to me who are present this morning that have been Christians for decades who are still daily studying their Bibles, trying to figure it out, trying to get closer and trying to get more faithful to the Lord. And then the last thing that I'd point out is just this resilience, a remaining faithful until death, which is what Jesus would say in Matthew. It's what Jesus would say in Revelation 2 when he says, I want you to be faithful even to the point of death, even if it costs you your life. And this, of course, was written to a group of people some 2,000 years ago whose lives were in serious jeopardy because of their faith. And Jesus would go on later and say through the revelation that is revealed to John and say, there will be more of you that will pass away as a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. I suppose if 2,000 years ago, our brethren were individuals who were willing to pay that price, we should be willing to pay any price as well. These things ought not be confusing. But we live in a world filled with confusion, and the world authors that confusion. There are so many other aspects besides these three. But I hope this helps us to teach others and to also be uh, helpful in structuring and grounding ourselves in the faith that we share in Jesus Christ. If you're present this morning and you are a member of a denomination and you're visiting with us, our goal, my goal, was not to insult you. However, my goal is to impact you and for you to think, I need to make some changes or at least study further on these particular things because a denomination will not get you to heaven. Even being here in this building, even though it's, we're glad you're here, is not enough, but rather your faithful individual, dedicated obedience to the Lord in being baptized, remaining faithful to death, and allowing us to work with you in that process. And if we can help you in that, we'd want that opportunity this morning. If you are a child of God and you're not living correctly, whatever the need may be spiritually, if we can assist, let us know while we stand and sing.